So we're in week three of our series, When Christians Get It Wrong, where we're talking about ways um, that we, even as Christians, act unchristian, uh, where we act unkind, where we act um, unlovingly, because the truth is we can be insensitive. Um, I have met some insensitive Christians um, in, in my life uh, and in my time as a pastor. There are insensitive Christians out there. There are Christians who are critical and judgmental and are mean-spirited. Uh, and the truth is sometimes we just don't live up to the great commandment, do we? I mean, there are moments in all of our lives where we just simply fail to love God with all that we have and to love people with the very same passion and fire that we love God. We get it wrong. And we, we just have to know that, that the calling is high and we're going to get it wrong, but we don't have to live the way that we've always lived. Sometimes, yes, we speak and we act with wrong motives. Sometimes we're better at seeing other sins than we are at seeing our own. Sometimes we major in minors and argue about things that make the rest of the world just shake their head and go, what in the world? Yeah, we do all of these things and we can be radically hypocritical. Radically hypocritical. Not only that, but we've been accused of being Afraid of science. We talked about that last week. We were Christians, and I'm not talking about Pittman Park or the borough. I'm talking about Christians uh, in general. They're being characterized as afraid of science and too closely tied to their politics. If you live in the South, you know what I'm talking about, right? You've, you've seen these things before. And today, I, I want us to admit together one more area where we get it wrong, and that is when we speak of other religions. When we speak of other religions, often we get things wrong. We just, we mess it up um, because we begin as Christians and people who, some of you have been in the church a long time, we begin with this mindset that we know the truth and that we've got like the corner, uh, cornered the market on truth and the truth is there and we can see it and we know it and we've got it over here and if you're over there, then you obviously don't have it at all. It's, it's sort of human nature to operate with that mindset, isn't it? We want there to be a clear line of demarcation between um, who's in and who's out when it comes to heaven and hell. Don't we want to do this? I mean, this is something that people fret over all the time. What is the line? What's the minimum you have to do um, in order uh, for, to be saved? And often the answer to that question, often the answer that people give to that question is, well, believe like I believe. Isn't it? Isn't it? I mean, that's the, that's the response I've gotten over and over again in my life is, is, well, what does it mean to be a Christian? Well, and the person who just said, well, says, you wake up at 7.30 in the morning and you have prayer time for an hour and a half. And then you read the Bible for another two and a half hours. And they're just listing off the things that they're doing, right? They're just going through this mental list of things that they're already doing or, or the things that they say that they're doing. <laughs> that's more often the case, Right? And we list off the things that we say we're doing, but we're, we're probably not really doing. Because we want, we want salvation for people to be a black and white issue, that there is a line that you must cross. And if, if, if you don't do these things, and you don't do them in the right order with your fingers crossed and your toes pointed in the right direction, then you're just not going to make it across the line. We want it to be a black and white issue. But the truth is that salvation has shades of gray to it, doesn't it? There are some shades of gray to this issue. God's love has shades 
of gray to it. We try to make faith and faithfulness a black and white issue when the truth is that the mystery of God and the mystery of God's grace is a mystery. It's a mystery. It's beyond our comprehension. It's beyond our ability to put our hands on and even to put words to, even though people try all the time to put words around this thing called salvation and life in Christ and faithfulness. We try to put words around what it means to be a follower of Jesus all the time, but our words, because God is so great, they fall short. But we struggle. We struggle because we want the issue of salvation and life in Christ to be very, very black and white and very, very concrete. But there are people, young people aged 16 to 29 um, who are opting out of the church because they see a problem with the way we describe God. And if you've been here very long, we describe God as love all the time, right? We describe God as loving, God as personal, God as intimate, God as concerned with our hearts and the lives of individuals, not just us individuals, but individuals all around the world. Every person God is concerned with. Young people get on board with that. They're like, yeah. But then they have a question. Well, then, if God is so concerned about every person and every heart and every life, then how in the world could a loving God, a personal God, an intimate God, how could, how could that God send people to hell? Listen to these words. This is from John, um, who was 24 when um, Adam Hamilton, the writer of this book, when Christians get it wrong, interviewed him. This is what John said. He said, one of the things that I've always had trouble swallowing with the Christian faith is that we have a God of compassion, a God of love, a God of forgiveness. But if you don't say, Jesus, you're my Savior, you're going to burn. That's not forgiving. That's not compassion. That's coercion. That's blackmail. How can you say this to people and say that your God is a God of love? People all over the world, John's going on, people all over the world could live the best life. They could be compassionate. They could be understanding. They could do their best to help their community, to help other people, to serve their nation. But you're going to tell me that this person who's lived an idyllic life of straight moral value is going to hell because he didn't say or she didn't say I love Jesus. And this is the last sentence. The last sentence of what John had to say. There's something there is just not right. There's something there that is just not right. Have you ever struggled with the idea of God being described as loving and then at the same time Sending people to hell. There are theologies out there that, that say God actually willfully sends people to hell. That, that God chooses to send people to hell. You ever struggle with that idea, that concept? I do. I struggle with that. And, and that question, those questions about salvation, they all point to this larger question that the Christian church has struggled with uh, for centuries, um, for nearly two millennia now. And that is, just how wide is God's mercy? How wide is God's mercy? How big is God's grace? Now what we're going to spend the next few minutes on 
is how Christians historically have answered that question. And there are three different responses to that. Well, three and a half. We're going to talk about the half, too. There's three and a half responses to that question that are Christian responses. Okay? So I want everybody to nod their head like this. Can you nod like this? Okay. These are Christian responses. Everybody, okay? You don't have to believe one of these above the other. We good? Everybody shaking their head like this now? You don't have to believe one of these over the other, but these are all three Christian responses, okay? All right, all three are Christian responses to the question, how big is God's grace? The first response is called Christian universalism, and we've got these up on the slides so you don't have to worry about spelling. Christian universalism. This is the first major school of thought about how wide God's mercy and grace is And this perspective um, holds that all people will one day be reconciled, uh, reunited with God. From this perspective, hell um, is like a place where you go to be reformed and one day you leave that place to enter into eternity with God. So every soul, every soul on the planet, according to this particular perspective, will be eventually reunited, reconciled with God and enter into God's kingdom for all eternity. This view, I mean, it really does hold to this idea that eventually everyone will get to be in the kingdom of God. But the problem with this view is that it actually takes away human free will. That's the issue here is that um, nobody gets to choose to reject God's gift. You ever turned a gift down? I don't think I've ever turned a gift down. But you know that whenever somebody gives you something, you do have the option to say, no, thank you, right? You have this option. This happens in churches sometimes. We're going to be honest here. This happens in churches sometimes, especially around the youth group. Um, when I was a youth director uh, in Claxton, we had people who loved the church, who loved the youth, who loved everything that was going on at the Parker Family Life Center where we would meet week after week. And they were like, we just want to bless the youth group. We want to give them just something they're going to love. We've got this old couch that's been sitting out by the road for like six or eight months now, and um, it'd go perfect in there. It'd be great for the youth. What we really want is just to get it off our property, but you can, you can take it and put it in the youth room. Kids will love it. That, that's about the only gift I've said no to. <laughs> no, thank you. I reject that. That's free will though, Right? Some people were like, oh, thank you for gifting the, the youth. I was like, no, no, that's not a gift. That's a curse. Um, so no thank you. No thank you to that gift. It already smells and there's a cat living in it. Um, <laughs> no thank you to that gift. In order for us to exercise free will, we get the opportunity both to accept and reject God's offer of grace. And that's the problem with, with Christian universalism is that you don't really get to exercise free will if everybody eventually comes into God's kingdom. You don't get to exercise free will. That's a gift to us as human beings. We have that opportunity. This is something that we believe in, that we have free will to choose or to reject God's grace. So the first view is Christian universalism. Second view is called Christian exclusivism. Christian 
exclusivism. And this perspective um, is generally held uh, by, by super conservative Christian groups, um, by evangelical people in the evangelical traditions. And we're, we're in an ev- evangelical tradition as a United Methodist Church. Uh, this is one of the ways that's been used to answer this question of how wide is God's love. It's called Christian exclusivism. And Christian exclusivism in its most logical and its most harshest form says that people of other faiths, people who, who don't express faith in Jesus Christ or didn't avail themselves the gift of salvation offered in Jesus Christ, will go to hell. According to this view, humans are born into sin, and as you know, sin separates us from God, and the only way to overcome that sin barrier, the chasm between us and God, is to accept an ongoing relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, most of us can get on board with that. I can get on board with that. It's, it's what happens whenever you take this view to its, its conclusion, its logical conclusion, where, where you start to get into some, some, some theological trouble. Okay, some theological trouble. Because if you take Christian exclusivism to its logical extent, to its logical extreme, what it says is that people who never have heard the name of Jesus Christ, and there are people in this world who never have heard the name Jesus Christ, who've never heard the gospel, who've never been to church, even in the South there are these people who have never heard the name of Jesus Christ, those people are automatically out because they never said yes to Jesus. The other people who are out are children who die before they have the ability to say yes to Jesus Christ. You see how this starts to get problematic whenever you start to take it further and further out? This, this view called Christian exclusivism gets problematic the further and further that you draw it out. So, so Christians have modified Christian exclusivism, um, and it's called modified exclusivism. 2A. There you go. Modified exclusivism. And that, that says that people will be judged based on the knowledge that they had of God and the knowledge they had of Jesus Christ, no matter how much or how little that knowledge actually was, that, that people will be judged based on their response to God's grace and God's love in their life, but that sort of, mm, that doesn't match with the original argument in Christian exclusivism. So that's the second, 2A, uh, second and a half response to how wide is God's mercy. The third Christian view, excuse me, Christian answer to that question is called Christian, excuse me, Christian inclusivism, Christian inclusivism. And this one, uh, this view is the one that makes the most sense for me um, as a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, this doesn't have to make sense to you, um, but this is the view that, that I sort of most closely relate to. I'm between modified exclusivism and Christian inclusivism. I'm somewhere in, in there because I'm not one or the other. I, I think that's how it generally goes with theology, isn't it? That, that you're not always one thing. You're sort of in between things. Remember, this is not always a black and white issue that we're talking about. There are shades of gray involved of all involved with all of this. So Christian inclusivism teaches this that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus came to offer salvation to the world. It teaches that the salvation of the human race is made possible through Jesus Christ, but that this salvation truly is a gift of God. It truly is a gift of God. Which means God can give that gift 
to whomever God wants to. Think about this. You won the lottery. Congratulations. That means you have lots of money, right? And let's say that you're a generous soul. Guess who you can give that money to? Guess. You can give it to anybody. You can give it to your brother, your sister, your mama, your daddy, your cousin, your nephew, your neighbor, the person down the street, the guy with the ratty couch that was trying to bless the youth group. You can give it to them and say, buy a new couch. You can give the money to whoever you want. Do you know why? Because it's your money. (laughs) You can do with it what you wish. This is how salvation uh, works according to this perspective, that, that salvation truly is a gift from God, and God can give salvation. He can give that gift of salvation to whomever God wants to give it to. Because God's bigger than our understanding. Because God is bigger than we're able to comprehend and understand. And so I, like Adam Hamilton, feel like when, when I get to heaven and, and I'm praying and working on that, that when I I get to heaven, that I'm going to be shocked by the people I see there because God's going to choose to give his grace to more people than I can imagine. Salvation is a gift, and we do nothing to deserve it. It's given to us freely. Christian inclusivism, excuse me, Christian inclusivism was the worldview, was the view of C.S. Lewis. This is where John Wesley Fell. This is where Billy Graham has come to be in his later years, and many others have said that God includes everyone who sought God and sought to do as God desires. Inclusivism, it's even the official position of the Roman Catholic Church today. And it's generally, generally the accepted view of most mainline Christians. And if you're um, at a First Pres or, or a UMC or a Lutheran church, these, these mainline denominations, the Episcopal church, this is where they fall as denominations. That salvation is God's gift and God is free to give that gift to whomever God chooses because God is mystery and he's too big for us to put words around or to box in with our language or with our own rules. And that's why this resonates with me. Because when I think of God, I think of the times I've spent sitting out on St. Catherine's Island on the backside of the island. Or maybe, maybe you haven't been there. Maybe you've only been to Tybee or to Hilton Head and looked down on the ocean. Have you ever looked out on the ocean? It's huge, isn't it? When you sit at Hilton Head or Tybee and you look out over the ocean, you can say, you know what, the ocean is brown. (laughs) It's kind of murky. But it seems to go on forever. And you'd be describing the ocean from where you sit rightly, wouldn't you? But the ocean is so much bigger than what you can see off of St. Catharines or Hilton Head or Tybee. The ocean runs to the north and to the south and to the west from here, to the east from here, excuse me. And then it goes all the way over to the other side of the ocean, places that you've never seen and never will see. God is like that. He's incomprehensible. His love and his grace is so vast and so wide that we can't even understand it. But this is what we know. This is what we know. If you write down anything today, write this down. God sent his son 
Jesus Christ, to live with us, to die for us, and to rise that we might have life everlasting in him. That's what we know. That's what we know. No matter where you go in theology, that is the truth of God that up there came down here, lived with us, died for us, and rose that we might have everlasting life. So then we come back around to our original questions. How should we be speaking of other religions? How should we live in this world as Christ followers, ones who believe that God did just that, that he died and rose, that we might have life everlasting? I think Peter's words to the church are very helpful. If you have your, your Bible with you or you have your cell phone or your iPad, I want you to open it up right now. We're looking at 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, and then verse 15. So we're looking at 1 Peter 3, 8 and 9, and 15. It's also in your bulletins there. You can look at these words. Peter here is writing to a church that's being persecuted, a church that's, that's having to live in a culture that's hostile to it. And he says these words to the church. He says, finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing. Because to this you were called so that you might inherit a blessing. Always be prepared, Peter says. To give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness. And do this with respect. Later on, St. Francis of Assisi would shorten this and make it easier to remember. Preach the gospel, St. Francis would say. And if necessary... Use words. This is what Peter is getting at here. He says, it's not for you to be able to explain every nuance of Christian theology. Heck, when Peter's writing, there's not a whole lot of Christian theology running around. He says, it's for you to simply live as those who have been called by Christ and set apart for eternal life. It's for you to live differently and live with hope and live with purpose and live with passion so that when that moment comes when somebody says, hey, why is it that you live with such hope and such purpose and such passion? Why is it you're so dedicated to your work and to your family? How is it that you wake up every morning in that moment when that question is asked? Be ready. Be ready to say, you know why? Because God sent his son to live with me, to live with us as humanity, to die for us and rise so that we can have hope, so that we can have passion, so that we can have purpose, so that we can be redeemed and reunited with God. If you'd like to be a part of that journey, I'd love to invite you. This is what Peter's getting at. Preach the gospel with your life. Don't worry about being an expert apologist or having some major defense. Live as one who has been called from death to life. Live as one who has been redeemed. Live as one who is a member of the body of Christ and a citizen of the kingdom of God. This is what we are called to do. This 
that's who we are called to be. This morning, we have the opportunity um, to respond, and we're going to respond this morning in, in two ways. One is by taking up our offering. The other is by um, tearing out the connection card that you have, filling it out, and dropping it in the offering plate. But um, as our ushers come forward to do that, I want us to have a prayer. A prayer that we might examine our lives and how we speak of other religions, how we're living our witness to Christ and to the gospel, and how we might be more true to the one who called us from death to life. Let us pray. God, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together. We thank you that you've called us to live differently in this world to live with hope and conviction and trust and purpose and passion. God, help us to respond to your offer of grace, to give you our lives, our whole trust, that we might transform the world in your name. God, be with us this morning as we continue to worship worship together and as we are sent out into this world. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Ushers, you come forward this morning.